series, teaching series in uh, the book of Ephesians, which is in the New Testament. If you have a Bible or a tablet or a phone that has a Bible on it, it'd be a great time to take that out. The text is also right up here on the screen. Tonight, we're going to spend a couple of minutes together looking at Ephesians chapter 1, the second part of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. So you can follow along right up here. I'm going to read the text for us, and then I'll pray, and then we'll jump right in, okay? So this is God's word for you tonight, wherever you may find yourselves. So listen to it. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We need God's help to get this, so will you pray with me? Let's ask God to help us. Our Father, tonight we come from all over the place, Lord, and not just geographically. Father, some of us gathered here tonight may be wondering how in the world we wound up here with a bunch of Christians in a strange place, um, hearing from the Bible. Some of us, Father, expect to be here tonight and are eager to hear from you. Some of us, Father, have been reading the Bible our whole lives, or at least since we can remember. Some of us might have not read it much at all recently, if ever. Father, some of us tonight are doing well. We feel encouraged. We feel enthusiastic. We're grateful. Some of us, on the other hand, Father, are distressed, are suffering, are having difficulty and hardship, and feel like you've turned your back on us. Some of us, Father, are in the valley, and some of us are on the mountaintop. But no matter where we are, Father, will you please come tonight and remind us again that we do need you and that you meet our needs in Jesus. And Father, we need your grace to understand anything, and particularly tonight, this portion of this book that you have inspired by the Spirit, the book that we call Ephesians. So we pray, Spirit, for you to come and give us minds to understand and ears to hear what you have for us. We pray that you would shower your grace upon us abundantly. Remind us of how deeply you have shown your love for us in the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus. And Father, we pray that you would grant to us faith and hope and love for you and love for one another tonight, and that you would use this time together to accomplish that great purpose for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does it mean? What does it mean to know God? That's a rhetorical question. But what does it mean to, to really know God? Um, J.I. Packer wrote a great book a number of years ago in the mid-'70s called Knowing God, aptly named for our title tonight, for our thoughts tonight. And uh, in that book, he has a wonderful, wonderful illustration. I'm going to show you a little quote here in a second, but let me set it up for you. He, he explains the situation like this. He says, imagine that you are going to meet like a, uh, a very high, dignified person, like, say, um, 
the Queen of England, you know, or maybe the little baby prince of England now. It's the most dignified person in England. Or the President of the United States. You know, someone that's way above you has a very lofty station. And you're sort of just thrilled even to get an invitation and you don't expect anything in this person's presence. Um, and so you walk into the room and something unexpected happens. Let me read to you what Packer writes. <clears throat> Instead of him just sort of throwing out his normal formalities, here's what this important person might say to you. This is Packer. But if instead he starts at once to take us into his confidence and tells us frankly what is in his mind on matters of common concern, and if he goes on to invite us to join him in particular undertakings he has planned and asks us to make ourselves permanently available for this kind of collaboration whenever he needs us, then we shall feel enormously privileged, and it will make a world of difference to our general outlook. If life seemed unimportant and dreary hitherto, to this point, it will not seem so anymore now that the great man has enrolled us among his personal assistants. Now this, so far as it goes, is an illustration of what it means to know God. So do you have that kind of a relationship with God? A person who is far above us, according to Christian tradition, to the Christian testimony, who is lofty, who is mighty, who is powerful, and yet delights to have conversations about you, about things that both you and he deem to be important. This text that we're looking at tonight really is all about the idea of knowing God. Okay, uh, We just started this series in Ephesians. Last week we started it, and we saw last week that Ephesians was a circular letter. And we talked about that. The Apostle Paul, about 2,000 years ago, wrote this letter to a bunch of churches in what is now Turkey. And these churches had been persecuted. These churches were suffering. These churches were experiencing hardship because they were a vast minority in their culture. The city of Ephesus was a very pagan city. There was all sorts of messed up stuff happening there. And so being a Christian in Ephesus would not have been easy. And so Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Ephesus and to churches around other cities like Ephesus to encourage them to teach them, to help them. And because it's a letter that's written for many churches, it's very general. It speaks about very sort of normative, um, fundamental, important Christian truths. And so it's fundamentally important for you as well. Now, last week we looked at the idea of how God blesses us. The first 14 verses of Ephesians really are about sort of the 30,000-foot the view of what God has done for us who have believed in Jesus Christ. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, he tells us. So Paul goes on this 14-verse um, this fourteen verse doxology, this praising of God, and there we stopped. And this week, beginning in verse 15, he starts praying. He offers a prayer for the church or churches that he's writing to, which is something that Paul normally does in his letters. If you're familiar with the New Testament and if you've read other letters of his, you'll know that almost always he says, I'm thankful to God and I pray for you and here's what I pray. And that's what we're going to look at tonight, just for a few minutes together. And the, the summary of the content of Paul's prayer, what Paul wants the people in Ephesus, and what Paul wants you and me to get tonight, right now, what God wants for you, is to understand what knowing God is. Really, he prays that the people in that church then, and really we can pray this for ourselves now, would more and more know God. And so let me just break this text down for you into three parts. These are the three things we're going to look at tonight. Knowing God's person, knowing God's promises, and knowing God's power. Nice little alliteration there. Very preacherly. Um, person, purposes, power. Three things, okay? So let's jump in. First, I want to show you that Paul prays 
that the Ephesians and that you and that me would know God's person. Look at verse 15 again with me. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in Jesus, etc., I do not cease to give thanks for you. By the way, isn't that a great thing to know that someone's praying for you unceasingly? Um, it's kind of a jaded world that we live in, particularly as Christians, and oftentimes when people tell me they're going to pray for me, I, sometimes I kind of think, you know, they're probably not going to happen. You know? but, but there are a few people in my life that I know when they say they're going to pray for me, they are 100%. My grandmother and granny, when they say they're going to pray for me, and they're going to pray for me every day, I know that is a guarantee. My grandmother is going to be praying for me every day. Um, so it's a great thing to know that you're being prayed for. Not, that's just a side note. That's free, free of charge right there. Paul says uh, he doesn't cease. He doesn't cease to give thanks for these people. He remembers them in his prayers. And then, beginning in verse 17, he starts to tell us what he prays. First, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, isn't that interesting? You know, there's a huge list, of, I'm sure, of things that Paul could have prayed for the Ephesians for. I'm sure there's a lot of things that were very important that were on his prayer list, his list of prayer concerns for the Ephesian Christians. But what he places first here when he tells them what he prayed for them is that they would know God. And I want you to see that he's not asking here, he's not asking God that the Ephesians would know more about God. Although I'm sure that they needed to know more about God, just like we need to know more about God. He's not asking that they would uh, believe that God exists. He's asking God that the Ephesians, that these Christians would know God, would, would know him personally. So let me just stop right here and ask you a couple of questions. Okay, first question. Do you know God? I, I don't mean do you, do you believe that there is a God? You know, 95% of Americans or something like that still believe that there is a God. And I don't, I don't mean do you know something about God. Most of us could say something about God and we remember it from confirmation or from Sunday school or from some random book we read in college. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, do you know God? Like in a, in a person-to-person way in a way where you have a relationship with him, where there's some level of, of intimacy. You know, maybe you don't know really how to answer that question. Maybe it takes you off guard. I suspect most of you would say, yes, I know God. Some of you may be wondering. And undoubtedly, all of us want to know God more deeply if we're Christians. So, so let me ask you a couple of other questions to ask yourself, to know, to discern in your heart if you really do know God. Let's do a little bit of heart diagnostic work here. On ourselves. If you're unsure how you would answer that, do you know God? Ask yourself this Would you be content if God took away everything in your life except Himself? Oftentimes, we, especially in America, confuse love of God for love of God's blessings. Now, it's not wrong to love God's blessings, God's blessings are good, but loving God's blessings is not the same thing as loving God. So, what if God? Um, took away all of your income and all of your savings tomorrow? What if God took away all of your relationships? What if God, like, decides to go Job on you? <laughs> right? Like, things just turn south quickly, and you don't have a clue why. What if God took your family? What if a tragedy were to strike you, and you lost pretty much everything that you consider to be dear to you tonight. 
that were to happen to you, perish the thought, but if that, if that were to happen to you, and God said to you, I am enough, are you going to be okay with that? Can you say what the psalmist in Psalm 63 says? My God, you are my God. Honestly, I seek you. My soul longs for you. My body yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is, where there is no water. If God took away everything else, all of the blessings that he's given you, and left you with just him, would you be satisfied? The way you answer that question might help you know the answer to the first question of do you know God? Second, let me ask yourself this. Um, do you feel love for God? I don't mean, do you, would you say to Pastor Luke, yes, I love God. Very good Sunday school answer. A plus on your chart. But do you, do you like have God at all involved in your inner emotional life? Is he a part of the inner circle of your heart? Um, do you think thoughts about him that delight you? Does he bring you joy or pleasure, like really, in the day-to-day? And one of the things I love about my three-year-old daughter, Ainsley, I love a lot of things about her, but one of the things I love about her is how, how sweet she can be. She's not always sweet. She's three, but she's normally very, very sweet. Um, and she says, like, some of the, just the sweetest things. That, you know, I grew up with two brothers, and I'm not, I guess, not very sweet. And uh, so I, I'm not used to this. And she will just randomly say, like, to her four-year-old brother, Nate, they'll just be sitting together coloring, and she'll stop coloring and just kind of look at Nate and say, I love you, Nate. <laughs> and she'll give him a hug and maybe kiss him. Like, Who does that? <laughs> I've learned normal people do that. <laughs> people that have a healthy emotional life do that. I've never done that. But maybe I should start. You know, I love that about my daughter. Um, she'll look at me and say, I love you, Dad. You know, just, that's unbelievable. It's, to me, someone as jacked up as me on the inside thinks that's remarkable. But I wonder, you know, do you have that kind of relationship at all with God? Not just at church, but like in your daily life, do you sort of feel and think, I love God? Do you ever pray to God? Um, what is your prayer life like? Um, do you spend time with him? You know, if, if you never really talk to your spouse, my guess is, and this does not require a counseling degree, your relationship would not be super healthy. If you never speak to someone, your relationship is not super healthy. One way you can know if you really know God is, what is your prayer life like? You know, prayer is really the primary gauge of the health of your relationship with your Father in Heaven. So ask yourself those questions. Do you know God? Would you be content if everything else was taken from you except Him? Do you love Him? Do you pray to Him? Do you know Him? Maybe you're not sure. So a second question is very important to ask as well. And Paul gets at it in the text. How do you come to know God? Look at what Paul says. He's praying, verse 17, that the Ephesians would come to know God. But look at what he says. He asked that God would do this, that he would give them a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in knowledge of him. Listen, here's how you come to know God. You don't learn it and you don't earn it. You receive it. You see, that, that's where the whole idea of what Christians call grace comes in. The only way you can ever come to really know God in the sort of way that I've been speaking about and in the sort of way that Paul's praying about here, about here is, is when God opens the eyes of your heart and shows you himself. And he does that not because of how great you are. He does that because of how gracious he is. So how do you come to know God? 
You ask God to show himself to you, and you believe that he has done that in Jesus Christ. If you want to know more about that, if you want to talk more about that, man, I would love to talk to you about that. I'm available right after church. Other people would love to talk to you about that, I'm sure. Come have coffee with me, and we can talk more about it, what it means to, to know God in Jesus. But Paul's praying here, very importantly and very fundamentally, first, that the Ephesians would know God, like would know God's person, would know him as he is in his essence. You with me? You following me? Okay, second, first, knowing God's person. Second, Paul prays that they would know God's promises. Okay, look in verse 18. So he's prayed that they would have knowledge of God, 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, again, knowing God, what is, okay, two things here I want you to focus on. What is the hope to which he has called you? First promise. Second, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Okay? So let's camp out there for just a minute. Paul is praying that they would know God's person, and here he's praying that they would know these two fundamental promises about God. First, that the Ephesians, that we would know the hope to which he has, God has, called us. Okay, so Paul's linking here hope with calling. Now, when you think of hope, you think of future things, right? When I think of hope, I think, I hope next year the Dallas Cowboys make the playoffs. <laughs> not a well-founded hope. Not, not a hope that has any level of certainty to it. That, that's really not the way that the Bible talks about hope. When you see that word in the Bible, hope, it's referring not to something that, you know, you sort of cross your fingers and hope comes true someday maybe. It's referring to something that is certainly going to come to pass. And so when Paul says here, I want you, Ephesians, I want you tonight to know the hope that God has called you to, he's saying, I want you to understand how certain the promises I've been talking about here in these prior verses are for you now if you trust in Jesus. I want you to know for sure that you will be blessed. I want you to know for sure that God loves you. I want you to know for sure undoubtedly, undeniably, 100% with certainty that if God has called you, you can take that to the bank. He has called you, and he has called you to something. He's called you to blessing. He's called you to salvation. He's called you, verse 4, to be holy and blameless. He's called you, verse 5, to be in his family, to adoption. And Paul's saying here that I want you to know that you can place hope in that. He wants you to be assured that that's true. I was reading this week about this, um, this sort of random story about this 18th century British couple and uh, this lady, the bride, uh, they were going to get married. The bride's very sort of from a, an aristocratic family, a uh, high-end, you know, Downton Abbey sort of family. And uh, her parents don't like the match because the guy that she's engaged to is sort of below her station. He's, he's way down the feeding trough, so to speak. And they say, you know, in the midst of arguments, we don't even know if this guy's ever going to make it, we don't know where he's come from. Where has this guy come from? And she says to her parents in sort of a moment of boldness, I don't know where he's come from, but I know where he's going. And really, I think that's what Paul wants us to see here. No matter where you've come from, with faith in Jesus, you know where you are going. Do you get that? Do you believe that? Do you know that promise, the hope to which he has called you? Okay. Second thing, he wants us to know the hope to which he has called us, first promise. Secondly, he wants us to know what are the, you see that there, verse 18, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Okay, now, 
stay with me here. I'm going to teach you a little bit about Bible interpretation. And, and this is going to help you read the Bible better, Lord willing. Okay, there's a little bit of an issue here. And this is something that happens all the time when you're reading the Bible. Okay, look there. He says, I want you to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. There's a question there. The question is, whose inheritance is being referred to here? There's two options. Is this talking about our inheritance? Like something we will get from God? You see that? So the his would refer back to like Joe Blow Christian. Or is this referring to God's inheritance? Is Paul saying here that he wants us to know what our great inheritance is going to be? Or is he saying that he wants us to know what God's inheritance of us will be? Now, it's ambiguous. There's good arguments on both sides. If you got really nerdy and picked out like ten commentaries on Ephesians, five would take one view and five would take another view. So you don't need to do that. Just trust me because I've done all that for you. That's the case. Now, I lean here towards the latter that what Paul's saying here, although there's good arguments on both sides of this minor issue, is that when he's saying he wants us to know the riches of his glorious inheritance, the his refers to God. In other words, Paul's saying, I want you to know, and this is profound, listen, I want you to know, Paul says, that you are God's own inheritance. So he's not saying, although this is true, this is not what he's saying here, I don't think. He's not saying um, that you are going to inherit great things when you go to heaven, if you believe Jesus. He's not saying that, although that's true. He's saying that you yourself are God's great inheritance. Not just that you are, not just that you are being blessed by knowing God, but that God, in his infinite grace, has chosen himself to be blessed by causing you to know him. Think about that for a minute. No matter what you think about yourself, no matter what has happened to you in the past, no matter who your mom and dad are, no matter where you were born, if you weren't born in Texas, you know, we won't judge you. Even if you weren't born in Texas, no matter, if you trust in Jesus, your identity fundamentally is as one who is a part of God's own inheritance. There's this actually not very good movie um, that I watched a few years ago. It's got, I think, Adam Sandler, Jack Nicholson. It's called Anger Management. If you've seen that, you should repent immediately. Um, but uh, at one point, you know, Jack Nicholson is a, is a counselor in this anger management class, and Adam Sandler allegedly has anger issues. And he sits down, and Jack Nicholson's character says, I want you to tell me who you are. And he says that to Adam Sandler. Tell me who you are. And Sandler, you know, like any guy, probably any girl, would just kind of like, well, you know, I work for so-and-so. And he's like, no, 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 don't tell me what you do. Tell me who you are. And he says, well, you know, my girlfriend is such and such, my kid. No, 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 don't tell me about your relationship. And eventually, it's supposed to be funny, Adam Sandler gets really ticked off and throws a brick or something like that. Uh, but, but the point, I think, for our purposes tonight is relevant. It's very hard for us to really kind of pin down who we think we are. Oftentimes, we think... Our past behaviors have defined us. We think our family of origin defines us. What God tells you defines you if you trust Jesus is what God has done for you. He has claimed you. He has made you a part of his inheritance. He delights in you the way you would be delighted to receive like this massive inheritance from some dead relative. That's how God feels about you, his children, in Jesus. 
That's, that's unbelievable. That's an unbelievable promise that Paul is praying that we would know more of. He wants us to know God's person. He wants us to know God's promises, particularly the hope to which he's called us, and the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. And then third, last thing, okay, stay with me. He wants us to know God's power. This is my favorite part of the text. You're not supposed to say that because it's all great, but this is my favorite, okay? Knowing God's power, okay? Verse 19. So he said, I want you to know the hope. I want you to know the inheritance. And third, I want you to know, now notice the power words you see here. Count them to yourself. What is the immeasurable, that's one, greatness, that's a power word actually, of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God wants you to know what is his immeasurable power toward us. Now, there's a lot of things I could say here. I want to hone in on one thing. Listen, don't miss this. Don't miss this. What God is saying to you here tonight is that the same power that is at work in you, if you are a Christian, if you have faith in Jesus, no matter how weak that faith is, if you have faith in Jesus, the same power is at work in you right now that rose Jesus from the dead 2,000 years ago. You see that? How it connects that there into verse 19? I want you to know the power, the working of his great might toward us that, verse 20, same power he worked in Jesus when he raised him from the dead. Listen, the power that is at work right now in this church is the same power that caused Jesus' still heart to start pulsing again with blood after three days, right? The same power that is at work right now in you is the power that caused, you know, Jesus' brain waves to begin having a frequency again after they had not moved for days. The power that is at work right now in you, if you believe the gospel, is the same power that gave new life and vigor and energy to his lifeless, rotting corpse. A life and a vigor and an energy that continues to give him life to this very moment. That is the power that is at work in you now if you're in Christ. Our problem is we don't really believe that. Our problem is we don't really see that. Brian Chapel, in his commentary in Ephesians, let me read this to make sure I get it right. He, uh, he tells this story um, of a therapy that's used by some therapists to treat autistic children. Let me just read that. this. He says, one therapy utilized by those who treat autistic children is to to cloud the lower half of their eyeglasses. Certain kinds of autism apparently manifest themselves as a child becomes completely focused on some dimension of his or her experience. Such a child can become so focused on a habitual activity or familiar object that interacting with that single aspect of life becomes the child's entire world. And so glasses clouded at the bottom but clear on the top force these children to look up because they can't see through the lower half of their lenses. It, it forces them to look up into that, to the greater, wider, outside world. And it helps cure them from their sort of obsessive introspection against certain objects where they forget everything else that's going around, on around them. And what Paul's saying here is that when you, when you look up, as it were, 
out of whatever's happening right now in the day-to-day circumstances of your life and see and believe the power that is at work in you, things begin to change in your life. Things begin to change in your heart. Things begin to change in your mind. So what is it for you? What is it that's causing you, like that autistic child, to look down, focusing solely on one thing so that you forget everything else around you, including God's promises? Maybe for you it's, you know, we've talked about this a little bit tonight. Maybe it's some past issue, some failure, some event that happened to you that has sort of defined you since that moment. I don't know what it is for all of you, um, but it's causing you perhaps shame. It's causing you guilt. It's made you jaded and cynical. You think, you know, nothing's ever really going to go my way. This is not going to go well for me. Things never go well for me. Maybe it's made you think of yourself as somehow unworthy of other people's love. Unworthy to reciprocate the love that you might get from other people. Maybe it's, it's just made you depressed. Maybe it's something like that. Listen, when you can look up and see that the power of the resurrection... The resurrection, life-giving power of Jesus is at work in you right now. You begin to change. Maybe for you what you're looking at is just loneliness. Maybe you go through your daily life feeling like no one really gets you. Even the people that are closest to you, the people that live in your own house, they don't even see me. They don't know what I'm experiencing each day. They don't know how hard this is for me. They don't know the struggles I face. I'm all alone. No one gets me. No one understands. No one's here to help. Looking, looking, looking. You need your eyeglasses clouded desperately. Look up. Believe. Trust. God's power is at work. Maybe for you, it's, it's some form of suffering. Maybe it's a physical, debilitating condition that literally like causes you pain each day. And makes you to where you, you can't do things that you used to be able to do easily. Maybe it's sickness or cancer. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's relational turmoil and breakdown that you cannot navigate your way out of. Listen, all of us are going to suffer. <laughs> Welcome to Christchurch. <laughs> You're all going to suffer. This happens so often here. What is wrong with me? I guess we just teach the Bible here. Um, because the Bible says this a lot. Suffering is coming. The question is, how are you going to handle it? Fog your eyeglasses and look up. Believe that whatever suffering you're experiencing is not nearly as powerful as what God did when he raised Jesus from lifeless death to new life. Okay? Whatever you're experiencing, be it emotional breakdown, loneliness, sadness, sickness, sorrow, cannot touch you if you trust that these promises are true. Yeah, they can touch you now. You feel the pain, but you know that that is not the end of your story. Listen, did God raise Jesus from the dead or not? If God raised Jesus from the dead, then he can help you in your loneliness. Do you know that? If God raised Jesus from the dead, you're not all alone. If God raised Jesus from the dead, then your suffering has a purpose. If God raised Jesus from the dead, your past does not define you. Jesus' work defines you. If God raised Jesus from the dead, and he did, you can have hope. 
Do you know that? Do you know God's person? Do you know God's promises? Do you know his power? Because it's at work right this very second in this place. I want you to know it. I want us to know it. I want us to believe it. So look up into the clear part of your glasses and see the truth. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, let's pray together. Our Father, we are a people that struggle. We are a people that, if we're honest, um, must come to you admit and admit that uh, the day-to-day of our life is often filled with our own um, anger and our own bitterness and our own doubt and our own pain and our own turmoil and not with a new faith in your promises and a life-giving relationship with you. And so, Father, for that, we repent and ask that you, by your Spirit, would come and make yourself known to us again in new ways by the gospel. We pray that we would believe that because Jesus died for us, we are completely forgiven, and because Jesus is alive, we have power to face the struggles that are inevitably going to come into our lives. We pray, Father, that by the Spirit, you would equip us to know you more deeply, to know the promises and the things that Paul speaks about in these verses of the Bible. Lord, we long to know them, but it's so hard for us. So come, reveal yourself to us again. Give us that spirit of wisdom and revelation that you speak of in these very verses. Help us to know that the power at work right here at Christ Church, the power at work right here in each individual Christian life is the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. It's the same power that is never going to allow Jesus to face death again, for he has conquered it. Conquered it. And if Jesus has conquered death by his power, then certainly we can conquer our own many deaths and many fears and many struggles by his power. So help us to engage it in our lives by faith. Lord, we worship you and praise you for your grace because none of these things come from us. They come from you. We don't deserve them, but you've given them to us freely. Nevertheless, and for that we thank you. We ask that you would be pleased by our lives, devoted to you, seeking to live by humble faith. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.